every critical issue of the 21st century that we need to win against in order to make the world a better place cannot be solved without engaging women fully. Pumzile Malambanuka serves two roles at the United Nations. She's the Undersecretary General of the UN and she's the Executive Director of UN Women. And it seems fitting to share her story as it's the week of International Women's Day. Pumzile was born in South Africa during apartheid. Many of her friends, including her husband, were imprisoned fighting for equality. When Nelson Mandela was elected as president of South Africa's first democratic government in 1991, Pumzile became a member of parliament and Mandela asked her to join his cabinet. And during her tenure, she had a hand in repairing a torn country after apartheid. That meant bringing basic needs like electricity to black people who had been literally kept in the dark by the former party. And Pumzile saw the power of South Africa's natural resources. When Mandela appointed her as cabinet minister, she went on to reform South Africa's mining rights. And in 2005, she became the first woman and first black woman to be South Africa's deputy president, which is the same as vice president. And now, more than a decade later, Pumzile is one of the top leaders at the United Nations. My life and the different things I did were not actually that well planned. There's a lot of things that happened because something happened and uh, you just were therefore catapults into, into the next issue. Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed, and I'm sharing our interview from episode number four. Back in November 2019, I had less than 24 hours notice that I was going to have the opportunity to speak with Pumzile at an international women's conference in Nairobi, Kenya. I landed at the airport, I got in a car, and I went straight to meet her. I was still charging my handheld recorder when she arrived, and it only took a few minutes to be enraptured by this incredible tour de force. Her energy, her humor, and her fire are just infectious. I had a small window of time to speak with Pumzile, so I wanted to start at the beginning, when she began her career as a teacher after graduating from college in 1980, and she joined the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association. You know, like, YMCA, that one. And so we just dove straight in, into the early 80s. Uh, I did a Bachelor of Social Sciences at the time when I finished university in South Africa, the apartheid regime was almost at, at war with its young people. Uh, being at, of that generation, we had a lot to rebel about and to engage the system about. When I finished school and started working, I became a teacher. It was not just about teaching. It was also about encouraging students to stand up for their rights, as well as organizing teachers. Already my fiancé was in prison, and we worked out that it's not the smartest thing for us to be in prison at the same time. So I, I decided, uh, fortunately for me, I had an opportunity to take an international job. Uh, so I, t I took an international job with the YWCA and then ended up in Geneva, Young Christian Women's Association. How did you learn that cause uh, and effect relationship between women's time, girls' education, with the betterment of society? Actually, the YWCA for me brought so many things home very early because as I joined the YWCA as a teenager. I was a white teen and that we were black 
it means that we had race issues, uh, that we had women's organization means that we had gender issues, and that we are living in the part of the community that uh, was uh, poor meant that we had class issues. So I was thrusted into race, class, and gender. I didn't even know those things had names then, but they all intertwined. It was as one grew and below became political and debated. They said, this thing has a name. Actually, I am belong to a class and I am part, I have a racial issue and uh, I have a gender issue. Uh, you also began to be part of international solidarity. And again, for me, I think I was just blessed to be globally aware at a very early age because the YWC was an international organization already existing in more than 100 countries. So once you joined, you were introduced into a global movement. So from the time I was at primary school, I knew I was a global citizen. At that time, we didn't have internet, we didn't have TV and so on. We used to sit and wait for visitors coming from overseas, people telling us about their own countries, and we were writing notes in our little notebooks and pencils, and we repeated the story to each other. That was the time of the pen pals. And the more I learned about which countries didn't have this, the more I said, okay, that was my fight. You heard that there was something that was happening in Western Sahara, that was my fight, and you just... What was happening in Zimbabwe, what was happening in, in, in Angola, what was happening in Sri Lanka, you just became an internationalist. Do you remember uh, as a student who you pen paled with, like one of the first countries that you were thought, oh, wow, that sounds amazing? Yes, yeah. Uh, my first pen pal actually was from Egypt. And I think we struggled a lot because I was, I was speaking Zulu English, and it was a he, and he was writing to me in Arabic English. <laughs> So you can just imagine what a confusion of letters those were. But still, you kind of, kind of could make out between the words that this is what this, con because, you know, you got to know about, uh, you know, the pyramids then. Uh, but then also, uh, as uh, and then I had a pen pal from Canada. I had a pen pal uh, from Zambia. And then after that, I just thought, huh, I'm international. You know, I've got three friends from three different countries. At that time, that was a big deal. So many students and young people today were born after apartheid. Can you describe what it was like for you growing up in South Africa at that time? Well, uh, apartheid uh, was uh, institutionalized racism against indigenous uh, South Africans, against blacks by a white minority government. So even if you wanted to be indifferent to the issue, it was in your face. Everywhere uh, you were, you carried a different ID book that restricted some of your rights. You were constantly being targeted by the police, in part uh, because the police were just for there to keep law and order which meant that you obeyed the discriminatory laws. It led to a situation where we had lots of political prisoners in South Africa. We had lots of people that were in exile. And uh, being in South African prisons meant uh, a lot of violence. People di were dying in, in, in prison. Uh, people were constantly being harassed in, in, in their homes. And did you see this firsthand? Did you know anyone who went to a prison? It was, yes. I, I mean, the majority of South Africans in their families would have somebody that, that would be in prison at one point or the other. 
but also it was a period of significant camaraderie that actually developed. The, res the resistance movement was very strong. And for us who were also women, we were also fighting against patriarchy, including the patriarchy of our own comrades, because we wanted to make sure that we're not just fighting to end apartheid and institutionalize racism. We also wanted to fight and end discrimination uh, against women. I mean, coming from the U.S., I think the audience would understand very well what racism is like in America then and, and now and what also it means to be black and a woman and in general what it means to be a woman where there is still also discrimination against women. The difference in South Africa was that this was happening to the majority because the whites who were ruling were a minority uh, with extraordinary capacity resource-wise, uh, military power against people who were throwing rocks and stones to fight against guns and tanks. But uh, international solidarity as well as the resolve of the people in South Africa uh, meant that even this was a David and Goliath type of fight. In the end, um, you know, um, apartheid came to an end. What inspired you to become a teacher? Um, I guess uh, noticing how much more able our people were going to be able to make a difference in our impoverished community if they had education. And the fact that uh, education is something that can never be taken away from you once you have it, the fact that uh, it does give you a possibility no matter where you come from, if you have the intellectual capability to excel and even outshine those who oppress you, just felt that uh, this was one kind of intervention and investment where the rate of return uh, was almost going to be higher in most of the cases. While it was not, it's not a panacea for all of the problems that we have in society, it gives you a better and a stronger voice and it gives you capability also to navigate life. Did you have a teacher that mentored or especially inspired you? I would say more than teachers, it was women in my community that really uh, uh, inspired me because uh, usually they were not highly accomplished persons in their own in lives, but were committed to give and leave something better for the next generation. Those were the women who, um, in the times of apartheid, were sometimes left while predominantly men were arrested and uh, were either incarcerated in the political prisons or left the country and they stayed at home and they looked after families and continued to fight for a better life for the community and for their children. And they themselves became uh, heroes in their own right. And women who were young when their partners uh, were sent into jail, but they actually thrived. And sometimes I used to think that the South African regime was much more afraid of the women 
than the, the men that they were keeping in jail. Because a lot of times, these were the women that would stand in front of the tanks and say, bring it on. So that was, uh, in, in, in a funny way, scary, but impressive. When you were working in Geneva, did you miss South Africa? What brought you home? A lot. Absolutely. There's no place like home because that's where you belong. That's where your family and relatives are. And you have a stake. If you are an, a foreigner or a migrant or an expatriate, uh, you are a guest. When you came back to South Africa, what job did you take up? So when I came back to South Africa after Geneva, I worked for an NGO, which was working in Cape Town. At that time, uh, my now husband, who had been in prison when I left South Africa to go to Geneva in order to avoid being imprisoned myself, uh, had come out, we had been married, and as a lawyer, a human rights lawyer specifically, he needed to be closer to where he can assist political prisoners. Did you stay in touch by writing or phone calls? When he was in prison, yeah, well, you know, you had a, a quota of letters, some of which he, he never received while he was in prison. Some of them I uh, later got to know that he never received years after we were even out of prison when there was another matter between us and the police. And then they brought out a whole lot of literature that they had kept uh, on political prisoners. And then he discovered, you wrote me this letter on, in such and such a year? Then he had to read it, uh, you know, a few, years, uh, a few years later. And of course, because this was a, a situation where this was a, a matter that was uh, aired in public, those letters were being read in court. It's quite embarrassing, I have to say. You, say. you say a lot of stuff when you think you are writing to one person. And because he was in prison, sometimes I was smuggling the letters. Some of them were written in a toilet paper and then folded, and I would give them to some of the police personnel that were our own contacts uh, who were helping us to reach the political prisoners. Yeah, but then we uh, we went to live in Cape Town and then I worked for a, a community organization which was working in the informal settlements of Cape Town, organizing uh, the informal settlements to fight against this, this the state of life in informal settlements in an affluent city like Cape Town, for instance, as well as uh, uh, working in the context of interfaith organizations that were very important for liberation the theology because a lot of the people that you needed to mobilize, one thing they did was they went to church. So you actually needed to get uh, the people that were in some authority and leadership in the church, in the hierarchy of churches uh, to take a stand. That's where we worked together with, for instance, Archbishop Tutu. And I was working in the informal settlement where you don't have the organized colonial churches like the Anglicans or Catholics and so on. People create their own African churches, kind of like Christian, but in a slightly different ways. It's very easy to be a bishop in those uh, churches. So very quickly, they wanted to make me a bishop. And I was like, you know what, I'm really not here for that. I just want to make sure that this leadership of the church also has access to liberation theology and is strong on gender, on fighting racism, and, 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 and so on the rights. The things that we're fighting today here at the ICPD, then you were preaching 
to these traditional churches to take a stand on all matters that have to do with rights. I cannot believe that I'm here, it's 2019, and we're still fighting those issues. But anyway, we used to joke with Bishop Tutu, and he would say, hmm, I can see that now you also want to be the Archbishop of Cape Town. So if I'm away, I can leave you as an acting Archbishop, which would have been hilarious for everybody who knows how much of I'm not a bishop, how much I don't have that capacity. But uh, yeah, but it was uh, it was good learning experience, a humbling experience, as well, be- because these were people of very strong faith who truly believed that by staying strong and holding on to their faith, a lot of changes were gonna happen. And you have to remind them, you have to meet God halfway. <laughs> you also have to be activists. You also have to protest. You also have to make your demands. Pumzili, along with her friends and peers, were active members of the party African National Congress, or better known as the ANC. When her party won the first democratic elections of South Africa in 1994, Nelson Mandela became the first black president, and Pumzile became a member of his parliament. Before the election, there were four years of secret negotiations between her party and the racist government in power. In 1990, when the secret negotiations began, Nelson Mandela was released from prison after 27 years. When negotiations started, how did you feel? This is something that you and your comrades and your family and, you know, your fiancé, now husband, had been working so hard for. Do you remember how it felt during that process? Oh, yeah. Um, You know, we started uh, by having talks about talks. And uh, because that was happening uh, in relative secrecy, it generated a lot of suspicion between the leadership and the masses, people like myself, who were not sure what the leaders were discussing with the regime that we were not privy to. And and because uh, Mandela himself made himself available to lead aspects of the negotiations, uh, at least the, the talk about talks from prison, uh, it made it even more complicated. How can a prisoner negotiate with the persons who are holding them in captive. Doesn't that risk him compromising himself? And he had to take a lot of negative publicity when everyone was speculating about what it is that he was talking about. But he also had sent a message to the leadership that was in exile to say, look, we have to find a way of moving this thing forward, and this is what I'm doing. Do I have your blessings? Which fortunately he did uh, have, but it was so tricky, it could backfire big time, so it had to be kept very delicate. So it took a lot of time when it was to, to get all of us in the rank and file to actually buy in and to believe that the system was genuine and that these negotiations could lead to something. And they were not smooth, as you probably know. There were times when we had such arguments that uh, the negotiations collapsed and we all went our separate ways and we were exchanging very harsh languages. And then uh, in the infinite uh, patience of leaders like Mandela. They would pull everybody back to the center. And uh, fortunately, at some point, both Mandela and de Klerk, at that time, who was the state president of the racist South Africa, were able to find a common spot. 
where they were able to pull, Mandela was able to pull us and de Klerk was able to pull his people. And we were able then to form teams and uh, they were able to get public opinion behind uh, them. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> After the negotiations, the first free elections were held that permitted non-whites the right to vote. The ANC, Pumzile and Mandela's party, won the election with over 60% of the vote. Before the election, almost every aspect of a black person's life was restricted by the white government, excluding one's access to natural resources, education, jobs, major industries, and even physical movement between neighborhoods required a passport. If you lived outside of an area designated for your color, your house could be bulldozed by the state, and millions of South Africans were displaced in this way. There were many opportunities for change and challenges after the election, and Pumzile was finding her footing in her new role as a member of the parliament. So my job was to collapse all of that to create one South Africa as far as the public services was concerned, which meant changing people's contract, rehiring. It it was one of the most painful things to see because, I mean, a lot of the people, even those that had supported the regime, they did not appoint themselves into those jobs. Uh, They were part of the gimmick uh, that uh, was in place. And just before we took over, uh, they hired many more people. I think in order to make sure that when we got into power, we'd be having so many people that we owed some compensation to. So to retrench them meant that we're almost bankrupting the state because of the number of people that we had to lay off. And you want, we wanted to make sure that you kept a civil service that was diverse in terms of gender, in terms of race, and of course the competencies and the skills. So uh, I was um, together with others responsible to actually develop legislation that was meant to pull together the public service and then legitimize the changes that we we were making. You know, it's it's midway into our first term. Then President Mandela uh, appointed me to be a deputy minister of trade and industry. And that was my first entry into the cabinet. How did that feel? Do you remember how he told you the news? Well, you know, um, yes, uh, I was actually on a trip. And I received a call that, uh, please call the president. If, if you don't get the president, call the deputy president. They need to talk to you. And the first thing I said, oh, my goodness, what's wrong? I, I called. I first, let me just call the deputy president first. And uh, she said, uh, where are you? Uh, okay, I said, okay, I'll wait and we'll wait until you come back. When you come back, come and see me. Me and Tata want to, need to, to, to see you. So Tata? Uh, Tata Mandela, well, it means father. We all called Mandela affectionately Tata. So I came back. Uh, I was in the UK. I came back from the trip, went straight to see the deputy president who told me that, you know, Tata would like you to take uh, the position of uh, deputy minister and uh, of trade and industry. And I was like, hmm. And I was very passionate and focused on education and the public service. And I just felt I still I want to do so much in that area uh, of work. And I was like, okay, uh, let me just think about it. You know, you don't you don't say that usually in politics. It's a deployment, you know. So he said, anyway, 
you, you, if you want to speak to Tata, speak to him. So I went to speak to him and I was like, Tata, are you really sure I'm the right person? There's so many other competent people in this parliament for this area of work. He said, you know what? I've been a prisoner most of my life. No one trained me to be a president. I'm learning as I'm doing it. You too will learn. And that was the most empowering thing someone has ever said to me. Because, you know, sometimes we can be very self doubting and self-effacing. And I think we do a lot as women. We always want to tick all the boxes before you take on a challenge. And that was very empowering. I went in there with an attitude. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And yeah, so, and I had a very competent minister also who I was deputizing to. And together we just made a formidable team. And why do you think that he wanted you to do this specific role? Uh, what I later learned, uh, what he, he is supposed to have said to some people was that uh, he actually thought that uh, I knew how to fight without creating a war that can never be stopped. And in the area of trade and industry and the economy in South Africa, there was a lot of fighting to do to cut a niche for black people and for women in the South African economy, which was a highly concentrated economy dominated by few companies that were almost in all sectors of the economy and just the entry point uh, for other people meant that you had to legislate aggressively and to negotiate aggressively and have carrots and sticks. But also we were making a re-entry into the global economy because apartheid had been absent in the global economy because of, of uh, sanctions and boycotts. So we had a lot of negotiations to do. With One needed to be therefore part of the team to, you know, to be part of those negotiations and to make sure that you negotiated hard, but you did not create permanent enemy in the global trading system. And you attracted investment as well. And to prove to people that you are no more communist liberation fighters, we are now a respectable government, we can sit in the table and not bang uh, our, our fists on tables. And uh, yeah, so... After Pumzile served as Deputy Minister of Trade and Industry, she served as the Minister of Energy and Minerals from 1999 to 2005. During this time, she was integral to creating new mining rights, which had previously excluded Black people. The previous government hoarded its natural resources, preventing many Black families from having electricity. Many relied on wood for their fuel and power, collecting their own firewood. And when firewood ran out, families would burn dung or corn husks. When Pumzile's party took office, most of the country's Black people did not have power. As Minister of Energy, one of the things that you championed was getting electricity to rural areas, getting electricity to women. Can you explain why that was your strategy and why you felt that was important for the economy? Well, you know, um, after trade and industry, uh, I felt by the end of that uh, session of parliament, I was clear I didn't want to be a deputy anymore. I was ready to be a, a minister. And in politics, you know, you have to be humble and not push yourself too much in front and pretend you're waiting patiently. And uh, But I mean, I did mention to a few colleagues that, you know, someone must whisper to the president that I'm, I'm, going, to be a, I'm going to be a minister, <laughs> you know. So I was pleasantly surprised when th then, the, the second president, President Beggy, appointed me to the job of minerals and energy. 
and of course, a, a very masculine portfolio, just like trading industry was. And South Africa is an, an economy that is very energy intense because we had hydrocarbons, coal, very cheap, and therefore we had uh, actually extra capacity of generated energy that was just not being deployed to all of South Africans was always first for white people and for white industry. And it was like, hell no. This energy has to reach rural areas and we have to make the quality of life for most of the people who for whom this is liberation dividend. Energy in schools was very important for schools to run efficiently. Energy in the homes uh, for women not to be cutting wood. And also at that time, we're beginning to understand climate change, the need for us to also move away from dirty coal to clean coal, uh, the need to make sure that we stopped people from cutting trees uh, for fuel and to provide them with, uh, with energy. And just the amount of time it just took women to have an energy management plan at a household level. I felt that energy is one of the liberation prizes for women before anything else, never mind energy for industries, etc. You can have industries, they can always set themselves up, but if we as the public institution, elected government, don't provide electricity to the poor, you know, electricity, water, roads, no one else will. So it was one of the reasons why people voted for us because they just, when their definition of a better life was this, I mean, this kind of, of, of infrastructure, which is so crucial. So yeah, and uh, they've been waiting so long. So it was important to fast track that. There was so much to do in transforming the mining industry in South Africa. Again, the mining industry is a very big a sector in South African economy is very global. So everything, if you change the laws to do with the management of the value chain of diamonds, you hit India, you hit Israel, you hit Canada, you hit the US, you hit Australia, and the whole world will stand up. So there was a lot of pushback. One of the things that you were doing in the mining industry was expanding it so South Africans who were prohibited from working in the in the industry because of apartheid could now get a job opportunity. Well, blacks in the mining industry historically were only uh, brought in as cheap labor who could do only manual work. And so when we got in, the fight was for ownership, participation in ownership, participation in senior management access to education, educational benefits, which were there for white employees, but hardly there for black employees who really needed skills upgrade. Health and safety was an issue. Fight for health and safety. We had aging, very deep gold mines that needed a safety to be a priority because if something went wrong, usually you just just like that lose hundreds of workers just like that. So that was a that was a big issue. So there was a and then of course, just the uh, procurement from people other than white people was an issue, let alone procuring from women. And of course, there weren't women who were ready to be suppliers to the mining industry. So I was pulling my hammer, where am I going to get these women? So that I fight and I get the space for them and then I don't have suppliers. 
Uh, but of course, you know, that time you were impatient, uh, things take time. I think it's only now, like 10 years after I left, that then I, I will bump into somebody, someone said, oh, yeah, thank you, Minister, because of you, this is what I'm doing. This is who I am. I own this mine. I'm this supplier. And I'm like, okay, these things uh, finally fall into place. I must also be fair and rational when I deal with the industry so that uh, I also don't kill the industry. So it was to fight for the right pension, the right medical aid. It was an exhausting job, but most satisfying whenever you had your breakthroughs. And of course, I was responsible for both minerals, as in gold, platinum, diamonds, etc. It was energy, oil, etc. Usually when I needed the gold price to go up so that we make money for the economy, it will go down. When I needed the petrol price to go down, so that petrol is petrol gone. So I was constantly trying to manage to the extent that you can, when we couldn't really influence the price because, you know, the market influences that, but you needed to shock absorb whenever the variables went the wrong way. It was uh, nerve-wracking, but uh, an interesting job to do. Kumzile served as South Africa's deputy president from 2005 to 2008. She continued to oversee programs to combat poverty and bring advantages of a growing economy to the poor, with a particular focus on women. She left politics, and before becoming the executive director of UN Women, she pursued a PhD in education and technology. And how many deputy presidents do you think go on to get their PhD and think, oh, I still need to learn something? <laughs> Well, you know, I uh, interesting enough, maybe it was because of the change in, in the global uh, space and the, the inception of the fourth industrial revolution, because uh, I, w I wanted to understand how technology is going to impact decision making and how could we leverage it to fast track delivery. I was concerned about health and education in particular and the extent to which uh, whether it is e online learning, which was not as widespread at that time, uh, we could be leveraged for us or how we could uh, also uh, fast track e-health e-government delivery and what were the policy choices that we have and what technology existed in my country at that time that penetrated significantly. And at that time, it was mobile technology. So I went to look to study how mobile technology could be a deliverer of service. I wasn't studied to be an engineer or a techie, but I wanted to understand operation processes, uh, regulation, and, and, and so on. But I, you couldn't at the same time, avoid being in the core tech uh, class where everyone was three times younger than me. I always felt so stupid. The kinds of questions I was asking. One day, one of my classmates, uh, who was a master's student, asked me, are you an old person? And I said, uh, I think we say older. <laughs> <laughs> And I said, and she said, I said, why? I said, I've just noticed that you and the teacher, you know a lot of things that happened long ago. And said, like, what? You know, you know about it. That, that, was the, that class was the class of the history of the evolution of technology. He says, ah, you know about a telegram and a fax machine. I mean, I was in class with people who were born after a fax machine. And their point of departure about technology started with the internet. 
So I said, yeah, you are an old woman, girl, uh, but hang in there, <laughs> you know, so... It, it was tough. I think if I had known it was going to be that complicated when I started, I probably would not have signed up for it, but I don't regret having done it. I learned so much. It's very humbling. The more you learn, I think, the more you realize how much there is to learn and how much more other people know more than you. And you became uh, executive director of UN Women in 2013. Do you remember getting the news? Was that a loud or a quiet celebration? Uh, well, there was a process. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon called me to ask me if I could apply that they were still looking and they were, they were reopening the process. Uh, at that time, I was, fin I was doing my PhD and I was in a phase where I was just about to finish. So everything in my mind was about commas and full stop and bibliographies. And, and I was exhausted, exhausted. I had left government. I had been out of the deputy president. And I just decided to leave politics just to refuel and to be in, in the academia and to just refresh myself. I want to understand two of your big goals during your tenure as ED of UN Women? Yes, of course. So when, when I, I went in, in, the, in an organization that was relatively young, uh, UN Women is only going to be 10 years old next year, which means that uh, by the time I finish, I would have been there for most of its existence thus far. And one of my biggest goals in UN Women was the diversity of people that are supporters of gender equality, that this is such an important battle to fight. We cannot win it if we're only confined to the historic fighters for gender equality, which is predominantly women relatively educated. So I needed to venture out for us to extend ourselves to young people, who usually are, when they fight for something, they have the mainstay. So I started for us to work with men. That for me was really important. And private sector, which is such an influencer in society. So and then the second, uh, but I mean, I'm not saying this in this particular order. I'm just giving you the two that are coming to mind, uh, was for us to galvanize the focus of member states to take on the discriminatory laws on their statutes because the UN is an intergovernmental body. If we are a part of the UN, which is made up of government, the one thing that only governments will do and can do, it is to change the laws. With these uh, partners, with this one unique privilege that changes so much in people's lives and not to push them as far as you can for them to pass legislation that entrenches gender equality and protects rights in law. That was my biggest thing. And when I became more and more exposed of how much we needed to do, even I, who was a relatively seasoned gender activist, I was just surprised if just how much there still was to do in changing and passing legislation. And we fought and we continue to change these laws. And amongst them were the laws that are addressing violence against women. And I think we have had a really good momentum. Still, we have not finished, but we have been, you know, we have managed not to make it okay 
to beat up women and women to have recourse, but we have not stopped men from beating up women. So that is the challenge. That's, that's why we're here. Two of your big campaigns that you've done so far, He for She, which is really folding in the importance of, of men and the fight for gender equality, and also um, your goal for 2030 for there to go from 10 uh, countries to 25 countries that have about 50% of their cabinet members split 50-50 gender. You wish me well there, but uh, it's really because the presence and the participation of women in decision-making bodies is critical because the first thing in bringing about any change is being there. If women are not even there, God forbid. I'm choosing this path because uh, we can engage individual heads of states there to do something about this because it is something that most heads of states are able to take a decision on themselves. And if we have more women appointed in this very public platform, you create instant role models for a lot of young women uh, to see themselves as leaders. And also the powers that they have are actually quite considerable. They can make change much faster. They can choose policies and laws that are really engendered and make the lives of women better. And through them, we can then create another wave of women and possibilities and to have some moral authority to call on others. I like to do a lightning round called Truth or Truth, going light after we go deep. What is your favorite way to unwind? A glass of wine. Do you have a book that impacted you that you still think about? Uh, yes. Uh, I know why, why the cage bank sing. Oh, yeah. You too? I'm in good company. <laughs> <laughs> your name. Is there a story behind the name that you were given? Yes, you know, all African names have got a story behind and they've got a meaning. That is why when people mispronounce, they could really butcher the meaning of the name, let alone the pronunciation. So my name, Pumzile, means someone who gives relief. And uh, I was given that name because I think my father was not a very settled person and uh, kind of like flamboyant, uh, you know, a young man. And when he got married and had his first child, the family felt, oh, this is relief. This guy is going to settle. So I hope uh, I have helped the family. <laughs> I think you've done more than help the family. I think you've helped the world. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We try, but it's, as you know, it takes a village. So I've been lucky to be in a village of people that have been tolerant of me when I've made mistakes, also good at guiding, and uh, have taught me uh, not to take myself so serious that I cannot laugh at myself. You know, I can just know that uh, you just can be an important excellence in 24 hours, just get a life and be normal. And that has been, I think, most empowering. You can follow Pumzile on Twitter at Pumzile UN Women. That's P-H-U-M-Z-I-L-E. To learn more about Pumzile's work, go to uwomen.org or on Twitter at uwomen. The Women is a production of iHeartRadio and myself, your host, Rose Reed. Holly Fry is our executive producer. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. 
Special thanks to Sabine Janssen, Nora Kipnis, Mandira Paul, Michael Freeman, and Gail Reed. A very special thanks to Etienne Loya for making this interview possible. You can find a picture of me high on life, standing next to Humzile in a Nairobi garden on Instagram at The Women Pod. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. So whenever I see educated and arrogant people, I'm just wondering, what happened to these people? Didn't they realize that uh, there's so much to learn and there's so many more people that are much cleverer than you? Because for me, that was my biggest takeaway. I could have been this, I could have been that. But knowledge and education is just so big and so excited. And lifelong learning is just something that we have to embrace.